Well, good evening. We welcome everybody here. Please grab your Bible and go on over to Luke chapter 19 as we begin our study tonight, looking at our attitude in being zealous for good deeds. Yesterday, we laid down a foundation for this kind of behavior and this kind of attitude by looking at the good deeds of God. We said that many people are just tossed to and fro, running towards this deed or running towards this action with the whims of the culture and the whims of the world. But we want a more stable, a more consistent, a more growing zeal. And we want to do that by building it by understanding God's own zeal in the good deeds that He has performed. We looked at everything from creation to salvation in God's good deeds. And then we spent a little bit more time studying, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, and we looked at the idea of being saved by grace, but not being saved just to be put on the shelf somewhere. Being saved to participate in the good works that God had prepared beforehand, in chapter 2 and verse 10 taught and so tonight we want to build on that foundation, and we want to build on that commitment to engaging good deeds that God prepared by looking at the right kind of attitude. And I want you to notice something very subtle. The lesson title tonight is not our attitude. It's not plural. We're going to look at a lot of different uh, behaviors, a lot of different approaches to good deeds, but please think of these as just multiple facets of the same diamond. That God wants the Christian attitude to shine with the sparkle and the brilliance of the most beautifully cut diamond. And when we look at these various traits tonight, we're still looking at various sides of one approach and one behavior that most magnifies God's name. And to do that, here from Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at a guy we're all familiar with, a wee little man that climbed up in a tree, a guy named Zacchaeus. Let's read the first ten verses together. Verse 1 says, speaking of Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried, and he came down, and he received him gladly. And when they saw it, they began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Now look at verse 8 closely. Zacchaeus stopped, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When we look at this wee little man, Zacchaeus, we see the singular attitude. And we see four different facets of this attitude that God wants us to demonstrate as we go about approaching the good deeds in our life. And the first is no surprise to you. It's the idea of zeal. Picture it for just a moment. A grown man is so interested in making eye contact with the Savior that he's climbed up this tree. And he's not just up in this tree noticeable to Christ. He's noticeable to the whole crowd. Because we, it's one thing to see a 10-year-old little boy climbing in a tree, but this chief 
tax collector, not just your run-of-the-mill tax collector, but someone that would have had a prominent position in the community has gone tree climbing for the afternoon. But if we would think that was most zealous, I don't think that that's what impresses me. It's verse 8. It's not just that he had to be able to climb up and see someone, because we see teenage girls who'll do anything to catch a glimpse of a rock star. And we see people look for who the world considers famous. They'll go to great lengths and great enthusiasm to see a famous person. But it's not just to see Jesus. Zacchaeus stopped. He pauses. Because what are they doing? They're grumbling. And what we see taking place is Zacchaeus beginning to exhibit some zeal, not just for seeing Christ but begin to exhibit some zeal for doing what's right. He begins to exhibit some zeal for the reputation of Jesus, not just for his own reputation. We said yesterday from Galatians chapter 4 and verse 15 that if we wanted to examine our own zeal, we would look at the intensity of our desire to participate in good deeds. We would look at the frequency with which we engage ourselves in good deeds, and we would look at the extent of our involvement. What? Apply that standard for just a moment to Zacchaeus and consider what's going on here and how we can build up our own zeal. Number one, there's an intensity here and that he stops because the deeds that he is about to commit to in verse 8 make a difference not just to him, but they make a difference to our Lord. He can let them say bad things about him. He can let them... You know, make speculations about what kind of man he is and what kind of character he has. But when they begin to accuse the Savior of poor choices and friends, and when they begin to grumble about the choices that Jesus is making, he stops because he'll have none of it. One of my great mentors is Linda White that worships with the Millersville Congregation up on the north side. I'll never forget going hiking with her. And some young men in front of us just swearing back and forth and taking the Lord's name in vain. And she stopped them and said, don't talk about my God that way. This is the zeal that Zacchaeus has. Wait a minute, you're grumbling about the Lord? Let me give you a good reason not to talk about my God that way. He stopped. And he said to them, to the Lord, but in the hearing of everyone, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, it would be fantastic if as we went about engaging ourselves zealously in good deeds, we could just look at the lost, or we could look at the impoverished, or we could look at the lonely, and we could have such great love for them, despite not really knowing them that well, but we could love our neighbors so much that we said, I've got to do this for their own benefit. And if we mature and if we grow, we need to get to that point. But if you're not there yet, then first consider that you need to perform some good deeds. Because God's reputation is on the line. You claim to wear the name of Christ. And then wearing that name, we have this great privilege of being associated with God's family, but we also have this great responsibility to not live as a hypocrite and to not bring dishonor upon God. And as Jesus has committed to come into the household of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stops 
Because someone he loves and someone he cares about is going to be impacted by this good deed. And we need to remember that if we refuse to participate in good deeds, that says something about our God. That says something about our relationship with our God. And our intensity, the intensity of our zeal, will be increased if we remember who is impacted by what we're doing. I'd also ask you to think about the frequency. You know, what's great about what you've committed to do throughout the month of October is that everyone else you're worshiping with knows about your commitment. And you're going to be talking to each other. You're going to, be, you're going to say, I can't believe Philip put that on day five. How am I supposed to do that? Or I can't believe Edwin let him put that on day 12. How are we supposed to do that? Or you're going to say, hey, I did day 15. Did you? Other people know. And other people are going to be helping to hold you accountable. Don't you know that if Zacchaeus had failed in even a fifth in dividing half of his possessions and giving it to the poor, all of Jericho would be holding him accountable. And don't you know that everyone who ever felt defrauded by this chief tax collector would be lining up at the household so that even while Jesus is there or as soon as Jesus leaves, they say, this is the way you defrauded me. Where is my fourfold repayment? He is publicly committed to performing this good deed. I was talking with a preacher friend the other day, and there is a ladies' group at the congregation where he worships, and they're trying to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. They're specifically working on their daily Bible reading, and they're text messaging each other. They're just pulling out their cell phone, and they're putting Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 and sending it to 15 other ladies in the congregation. And then someone will send out another text message, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And they're sending that out to the other 15 ladies. To brag? No. To hold each other accountable. And if they don't get a text message from one of the ladies in their group, then when they see each other next time at worship, they're saying, are you reading your Bible the way that you're publicly committed to Zacchaeus shows a great zeal here and a commitment to participate more frequently by letting other people know what he intends to do. And this can be a great tool for us as we seek to be more zealous in our good deeds. But there's a third thing when we think about just the extent of involvement. If we recognize how much we really have and how we've used it in the past, we realize how many opportunities we have. To be more zealous. Look at verse 2 with me again. Zacchaeus is not just any guy. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. It's been well said that when you get up in the morning, you have a choice of clothing for the day. Then you are rich. The brethren, rich is not a six-figure income. Rich is every one of us. We have so many blessings from God. We live in a five-talent society. We have more time. We have more money. We have greater access to the Word of God than almost any nation in the history of this world. We are rich. And if this doesn't apply to us, then who does it apply to? And he knows here that he has great wealth at his disposal. And we need to understand that we have so much with which God has blessed us so that we can bless other people. If we realize how much damage we do by rejecting God, by choosing to hoard 
the blessings that he's entrusted us with, then we can stop and we can say, wait a minute. The extent to which I serve God with zeal, with generosity, that needs to be fitting the great blessings he's given us. We need to be zealous in intensity and in frequency and in extent. And in verse 8, Zacchaeus really sets the bar high for us. That he's going to give half of all that he has. And for anyone that he's defrauded, he will repay four times. We need to imitate that kind of zeal. The next uh, facet of this singular attitude that we need to demonstrate is that we must be loving. Zacchaeus does not just make a random commitment in the kind of good deed that he is going to involve himself. He is specifically thinking about his opportunity to help the poor. This is indisputably a loving action. It doesn't matter if we look at the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament or we look at the Law of Liberty, the Law of Christ of the New Testament. God calls on us to not neglect those who are poor. And Zacchaeus may not know a whole lot about how to serve God. But he knows that giving to the poor is a good deed. That it's a loving deed. And so what Zacchaeus does is begins to take action with his zeal. And in his love. If we could describe that from the New Testament, I'd ask you to look over at Colossians chapter 3 for a moment. In Colossians chapter 3, we think about the kind of love that needs to encompass our good deeds. Verse 12 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on this kind of heart. Put on a heart of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness. And patience. And we say, okay, Philip, I'm pretty good at that. I try to be compassionate towards people that I see are in need, or when I know that I have an opportunity to do something good towards those who are poor, I want to be humble and not think of myself as better than this person, and I want to be patient. But let's go on to verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you so also should you. Brethren, the road of good deeds has potholes in it, just like every other road of life. And there are going to be times where forgiveness is the aspect of love we need. We're bearing with one another is an aspect of love that we need. We're dealing with the complaints that people may charge us with is an aspect of love that needs to be manifested in our good deeds. Verse 14, beyond all of these, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We need to have that thankful kind of love. And it's so important, as we're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's so important that if we mess up love, then it does not matter if we follow Zacchaeus in giving half of our possessions. It doesn't matter if, as he says in verse 3, I give all my possessions to feed the poor. And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Nothing. This is an absolutely mandatory attitude for us to adopt and for us to incorporate in the way that we approach our good deeds. In the book of 1 John, we're reminded that this is the love that takes action. We studied this scripture a little bit yesterday, and I want to repeat it just to drive it home in our hearts. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed. And in truth, don't you love that being addressed to the little children? 
does that mean? Think about it for a minute. Does that mean under 12? Uh-uh. When John is writing this verse, he's saying, even the babes in Christ, no matter how young you are in your walk of faith, you, little children, need to embrace this concept. You need to apply it in your life. You need to be having love that is shown not just in your words, but in your deeds. And I think we could think of Lot as a great example of one who holds on and does not get jaded in his good deeds and in his desire to do what is right. Because let's face it, it's frustrating to get out there and to zealously seek to engage the good deeds and to be really loving and just give of yourself and to find that someone has not appreciated the efforts that you've put forth or to find worse that someone has abused the blessing that you've shared with them and it ended up drawing them deeper into sin because of their foolish choices. Oh, it can be frustrating. But I don't think any of us face problems and circumstances any more difficult than Lot. And with all of his issues and with all of his shortcomings, the redeeming quality that Peter focuses on in verse 8 is that by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We can have our hearts become hardened like Pharaoh, or we can pray diligently that our hearts will remain sensitive to the needs around us. We can pray that our soul will be tormented day by day because of the lost souls around us, that we will look for some way to tell them the great good deeds of God, that they might know salvation. We want to feel sad when we see people suffering in sin. Not because we love to be gloomy, but because we need that sensitive heart so that our love never grows cold. So that it is part of our attitude in partaking in good deeds. Then we can go back to Luke chapter 19 with me. We'll look at another characteristic that's demonstrated by our wee little man. We want to look at the idea of being generous in our good deeds. It is quite clear from Luke chapter 19 that Zacchaeus is one who gives liberally, not because of the amount necessarily that he chooses to give, but because of his commitment immediately to seek this deed for God's glory. When you look up generosity in Webster's, it talks about sharing freely and sharing abundantly. No strings attached and also with an abundance to the best of our ability. And Zacchaeus is one guy who's just doing this, not just describing it. You notice for me, for a moment, what we see here. Generosity is not in the amount. We think of multiple people who just set aside a portion, right? Zacchaeus sets aside a portion. He sets aside half. Who else in Acts chapter 5, do you remember, was setting aside a portion? Oh, yeah. It was Ananias. And that was Sapphira. Now, we don't know if they exactly gave half, but it was some portion. But where was their focus? When they gave half. Or not, excuse me, not half, but they gave a, a portion, a very significant portion. It's laid here at the apostles' feet. Such a large portion that they believed no one would really notice that it wasn't the whole amount. So I'm thinking it's a pretty good portion here. And what do they focus on? How much they can give? No. 
Their focus is on how much they can keep for themselves. There's a great difference here between Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 and Zacchaeus. Rather than him focusing on all that he can keep for himself, he focuses on how much he can give. Because notice the agreement again in verse 8. He's not just going to take half of his possessions and be done with this and write it off and never look back. No, half. And on top of that, anyone that he has defrauded, he'll make up for it fourfold. He has this great desire to set things right. Ever think about why he says fourfold? This is just a random number that popped into Zacchaeus' head. I don't believe so. Take your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 22. I think that he uh, may have been drawing on an Old Testament principle that when you had been when you had wronged someone, when you were clearly guilty of that, then there was a repayment to be made. And Exodus chapter 22 and verse 1 tells us the terms of that repayment. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, and he slaughters it, or he sells it. He shall pay five oxen for the ox, and four sheep for the sheep. We see that an oxen would have been considered more valuable and worthy of a greater repayment. And once you've taken someone's ox, they may not have very many oxen, and they depend on those oxen to be able to continue their agricultural lifestyle. But sheep, they're more a dime a dozen. I mean, they had a lot of sheep. And so instead of paying back five times, they pay back four times. If indeed this is an accurate reference, then Zacchaeus is saying, okay, I don't think I've wronged anybody oxide defrauding. But yeah, there's some sheep-sized offenses that I need to repay. And I'm going to repay them in the way that the law has described. I'm going to repay them fourfold. And we need to admire that desire to set things right. Because the truth is, you cannot undo sin. You steal, some, you steal a candy bar, kid, and your parents catch you. And they march you right back in the store, and they make you set down that candy bar. In addition to setting down that candy bar, they make you take your allowance money out and pay the cashier for the candy bar anyway. Have you made up for, have you undone your sin? No. Brethren, sin cannot be undone. Sin can only be forgiven. And what Zacchaeus does is throw himself at the mercy of our Savior, willing to bear fruits of repentance, yes, but unable to undo his sin. And as we said yesterday, we're going to focus on good deeds a lot, but I don't want you to get the idea that if you repay somebody fourfold, that you've undone your sin. No, we see as the context continues in verse 9 that Zacchaeus is not in need of just a zeal for good deeds. Zacchaeus is in need of salvation. His generosity continues in this particular context in that it shows a great trust in the Lord. When we choose to adopt a spirit, an attitude of generosity, we are living out the great principles that are recorded for us in Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 3 and in verse 9 and in verse 10, the Bible simply paints this picture for us. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. When we trust in the Lord, He promises that He is the one that's going to provide. When you look at chapter 11 and verse 25, 
the book of Proverbs continues to reinforce this idea of generosity and trust. It says, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Chapter 22 and verse 9 again echoes the thought, simply saying, he who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. We need to appreciate so much that God is able to lift us up and provide for our needs despite what we may give to others or what we may invest in good deeds. As the old saying goes, you can't outgive God. If we could just think about the Old Testament idea of giving a tenth, you can do more with 90% and God's blessing than you are ever going to be able to do with 100% walking on your own. That's exactly what was happening in the Old Testament when they stopped being generous, when they stopped looking out for the orphan or the widow, when they stopped caring for the alien and the stranger, when they held back the tithe that God had commanded. The dollar just didn't seem to stretch as far. We need to have this generous spirit. And can I tell you that this is a trait that is especially mentioned as admirable in ladies? Let me address the ladies for just a second. It's through the next month you're trying to get fired up and you're looking for that good deed you want to get involved in. The scripture over and over again says this is something that just shows the beauty of your heart. In Proverbs chapter 31, this virtuous woman that we read about, it says of her in verse 20, she extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hand to the needy. In Luke chapter 8, in verse 2 and 3, the Scriptures pause and record the names of those women who took up their own resources and helped fund the work that Jesus was doing with great generosity. In Luke chapter 21, we of course remember perhaps the most generous woman of the Scriptures, the widow that put in the two mites. She put in all that she had. We look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9 and verse 10, and we remember that one of the widows that would be added to the list, those that would be supported by the congregation, are the widows that were constantly engaged in good deeds, deeds of generosity. Husbands, let me talk to you for a second. Are you honoring your wife's generosity? That inner shopper in her, are you helping her funnel it? towards good deeds? Are you patting her on the back and you telling her how much you admire this trait? God finds it amazingly attractive. And I hope you do too. Lift up the women in your life as they seek to be generous. And let's learn from these amazing women in the Scriptures in building our own generosity. We've got to be zealous. We've got to be loving. We've got to be generous. There's one more trait that we see here, and that is simply that we must be repentant. As is clear, Zacchaeus knows that he has defrauded others. And the way that Jesus responds here in Luke chapter 19 is impressive because he uses two key phrases that you just don't take lightly. Jesus is not rambling. Jesus is not filling time. When Jesus speaks, His words are chosen carefully. And He says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. Did Jesus go around just passing out salvation willy-nilly? Of course not. When Jesus said that someone were saved, when Jesus said that their sins had been forgiven, go and sin no more. It was because He knew the heart of that individual. And because He had seen faith in that person's life. 
When Jesus extends salvation to Zacchaeus and his household in verse 9, it's because he knows that the commitment Zacchaeus has made in verse 8 is a commitment to repent. Zacchaeus has dropped it. He's not going to be defrauding people anymore. He's not going to be using his position as a chief tax collector to walk in deep of darkness. He's turning his life around. And brethren, let us know that committing to serve God means committing to put away our deeds of darkness. And for the rest of our life, committing to do what's right. Let me tell you a personal story. This happened about a week and a half ago. We just moved to Kentucky. We've been there about five months. And come to find out, it is a state law. You're not allowed to do U-turns. I hate that law. I think it's a stupid law. That's Philip's opinion. Uh, especially our pediatrician. You would just be so easy to do a U-turn every time. So we pull out, uh, do a U-turn, and Tracy says, uh, are we just submitting to the authorities on our own personal whims? I said, you got it. I'm glad you understand the system. Just when I feel like it, I'll go ahead and obey the law. She says, okay, you need to think about that. I said, okay, I'll think about that. And I really thought about it. And I got ready to recognize, okay, this is sin. I disobey the laws of the land. God wants me to submit to those laws. And before I can ask for forgiveness, I have to repent. That's repentance. But repentance means making a lifelong commitment not to do that anymore. Man, I hope to live in Kentucky for quite a while. And there's a lot of stupid medians in the middle of the road where it would be really helpful if you could just do a U-turn. Am I going to really commit not to do this any more. For two days, I wrestled with that. And I thought, wait a minute. Ten years ago, fifteen years ago, when I became a Christian, I already made this decision. I don't have to get up on Sunday morning and decide if I'm going to worship God. I'm going because I'm a Christian. I don't have to sit around on Wednesday night and decide if I'm coming to Bible class. I'm going because I already gave my life to Christ. And it was just, the stupidity hit me. Philip, you're refusing to repent because you might save 25 seconds at some point in the future? And I stopped right there and said, God, I already made this decision. I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to walk with you even when I don't understand why I have to and even when it might be temporarily more convenient to do it my way. I want to do it your way. And I know that this is a silly little illustration, but what Zacchaeus is doing here is big. Because you know, I'm changing. I'm changing my life because I'm going to walk with God from here on out. And I'm leaving these things behind. Take your Bibles over to Zephaniah chapter 3. Old Testament is just like the alphabet. The Z's are at the end. Uh, Zephaniah is towards the end of the Old Testament, four books back. You can remember that easily, or if you're preaching, you can just put your ribbon there. But in chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible says, In that day, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. God created shame just as much as he created love. But he did not create it so that you could spend several days feeling guilty about your sins. God created shame to motivate us towards repentance, to motivate us towards making a real change. And these people, they needed to really, really change. 
and God is going to punish them and they will never again be haughty on this holy mountain. Brethren, let us never again be haughty enough to refuse to repent of our deeds of sin. In John chapter 3, John is inspired to divide the world into two groups of people. In verse 20, he says, Everyone who does evil hates the light. Everyone. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Because if we stand in the light of Scripture and we stand in the light of our God, we're going to see the blemishes. And there are some people that don't want that. They hate the idea of feeling that shame and of recognizing their shortcomings and their sins. But he says in verse 21, But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Please, over the next 30 days, keep coming to the light. Let the deeds that you zealously, lovingly, generously perform give glory to our Father. Let them be seen by this world as having been wrought by God. That's the first neat phrase that Jesus uses. Salvation has come to this household because he's repented and he has expressed his faith in God. But there's another amazing phrase here back in Luke chapter 19 when we draw down to verse 9 and verse 10 that Jesus uses to describe this change and this commitment and the very attitude that Zacchaeus is demonstrating. Verse 9 today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Isn't that a powerful New Testament phrase? He is turning from evil, and we know that he is doing this by faith, because to be called a son of Abraham was about the highest compliment you could have paid a Jew, wasn't it? And when Jesus publicly declares that Zacchaeus, the guy that you think of so poorly, the man that's standing before you today, this man is a son of Abraham. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, this is the words that Matthew is inspired to write about Jesus himself. That he's a son of Abraham. He's a son of David. We know in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16 that as children of God today, we are called these descendants, these sons of Abraham, because we, we have that faith of Abraham. Verse 16, assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. If we want Jesus sticking up for us, if we want Jesus saving us as He saved Zacchaeus, we've got to be like Zacchaeus in being a son of Abraham, in having that true faith. The faith that Isaiah had to say, Here am I. Send me. I'm ready to participate in your good deeds. These comments by Jesus clearly demonstrate the heart that he saw in Zacchaeus. And I want to ask you tonight, would Jesus look at you and say, you are a son of Abraham? That you have the kind of faith of our great forefather. That you have this kind of repentant heart when you sin. That you have this kind of generosity. That you have this kind of love. That you have this kind of zeal. Jesus silences all detractors in making this declaration. And he follows up in verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Brethren, I hope that you develop this kind of attitude. And I hope that you learn to honor Zacchaeus as not just a guy that climbed a tree, but as a man that was zealous for good deeds. But please don't spend so much time focused on Zacchaeus that you miss verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Are you lost tonight? Have you ever had Jesus Christ wash away your sins? If not, then you are lost. Have you had those sins washed away, but you've been like, like Zacchaeus, instead of honoring that heritage, that faith of Abraham, you've turned back to sin. And you've been defrauding people publicly or privately. And you know that you haven't been living with the love and the zeal and the generosity that God requires of you. We want you to take this opportunity to come back to Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost. And He stands ready to save you tonight. Brethren, if you need to make things right with the Lord, come forward. We will talk with you. We will pray with you. And if you need it, if you're ready, we will be happy to baptize you into Christ to have those sins washed away. Don't delay. Become zealous for God and zealous for His good deeds this evening while we stand and while we sing the song that's been selected for us.